Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 2nd, I think. I didn't even look before the program. I'm sorry, Friday, September 4th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I'm sorry, I'm really bad at seeing what date it is before I start these programs. I really don't care about the date. I wish it was Revelation 19 day. That's the day I'm waiting for. Today we're going to present the final installment of our presentation of Paul's epistles of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. This is subtitled The Family of the Faith, which will be at least one major aspect of the discussion tonight. The concept of antinomianism has meant different things to different theologians. However, to accuse Paul of Tarsus of being an antinomian in the sense of one who would set aside or negate or diminish the laws of God or to have derived a doctrine which includes those things and claim for it the authority of Polytharsis is to be a liar in both Galatians and Romans, and also in his epistle to the Hebrews. Paul has explained how and why the works of the law, not the law, the works of the law, which are the ordinances such as the sacrificial rituals, and ceremonies conducted by the priests are done away with in Christ. However, in all of these epistles, Paul also fully demonstrates that the moral laws of Yahweh, which are found in the commandments of the law, are to be upheld in Christ. Apparently, all of the theological confusion in regard to antinomianism as opposed to the equally wrong concept of salvation by works, has resulted, at least to a great extent, because Christians have failed to perceive between the works of the law and the commandments which even Christ has admonished them to keep. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul had said in verse 18, that if you are led by the Spirit, you are under no law. The denominational sects often use that phrase by itself, pulled out of its context, to give approbation to whatever it is that they may desire. But Paul had already said in, earlier in that chapter, in verse 13, that the freedom in which Christians are called is not that freedom for occasion in the flesh. You can't run off and be a fag and claim that you are spiritual or be engrossed in pornography 
and claim that it doesn't matter because you are spiritual. That is a lie. You are kidding yourself. And Paul insisted in verse 14 that all the law is fulfilled in one statement. To wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. With that, we must discern that Paul had indeed remained concerned with the keeping of the commandments of the law. That is, of course, one of the commandments of the law. However, Paul's own lengthy explanation of what he means by being led by the Spirit is found in his later epistle to the Romans. He must have taught the Galatians many of these same things, even if they are not repeated in this epistle. Paul explained in Romans chapter 7 that indeed we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, being ruined by sin. Then, following his elaboration upon the distinction between the will of the flesh and the will of the spirit, he concluded in part by saying in Romans chapter 8 that the law is powerless in that it has been weak over the flesh, Yahweh sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and amidst sin condemned sin in the flesh that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the spirit, ostensibly because the mere existence of a law does not keep men from sinning. The law has been weak over the flesh. And Paul goes on to say, for they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh, and they who are in accordance with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the purpose of the Spirit, life and peace. Therefore, you cannot be a homosexual. You cannot be a fornicator, an adulterer, pursuing the things of the flesh and claim to be spiritual. Because the purpose of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh, then to the law of Yahweh, it is not obedient, neither is it able to be. And they that are in the flesh are not able to satisfy Yahweh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, and if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. But if Christ is in you, indeed, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit alive because of righteousness. How can you claim that Christ is in you? The only way that Christ himself said that he would commune with you is in John chapter 14, where he said that if you keep my commandments... I and my Father will come to you and dwell in you. If you keep my commandments, there's no other way to claim to be spiritual than to have Christ in you except to be a child of Israel and keep his commandments. That's the only way to be spiritual. Everything else is a sham.
If we pay close attention to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us, who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the spirit. It is manifest that the judgment of the law still awaits those who continue to walk in accordance with the flesh. Therefore, we find that living in the sins of the flesh, we are not being led by the spirit of Yahweh our God. Paul is not giving us license to sin. Rather, he is telling us that if we live the spiritual life, seeking the things of the Spirit of God, that we should not sin. Those who would participate in the deeds of the flesh and then claim to be spiritual are deceiving themselves, attempting to justify themselves by lying to both themselves and to others. This is the major fault of the denominational sects. They disregard the law of God and then claim to be spiritual. And they frequently claim to get their license from the teachings of Paul. Yet Paul had actually taught that if you purposely sin, then you are fleshly. You are still liable to judgment and you are not spiritual. And they that are fleshly are not able to satisfy God. But if one is truly spiritual, he strives to keep the commandments of the law apart from the rituals and sacrifices. And even when he does fail, because we all fail at diverse times, he understands that Christ is his only propitiation. Here in Galatians chapter 5, and we will overlap some of the things that we presented at the end of last week's program. Here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul continues by describing some of the deeds of the flesh which Christians living in the Spirit are expected to have put away. And Paul says that manifest are the deeds of the flesh. Such things are, and some manuscripts interpolate adultery here, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, the use of drugs, hostilities, contention, rivalry, wrath, intrigues, dissensions, sects, envyings. Some manuscripts interpolate murders here. Drunkenness, revelries, and things like these, which I have announced to you beforehand, just as I have said before, that they who practice such things shall not inherit Yahweh's kingdom. What Paul had meant by things like these may also be discerned in the laws of Yahweh in the Old Testament. In a similar discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and once again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, both of those epistles being written after this one, Paul had given examples of several other such things in addition to these. And if all three passages are taken from Paul's epistles, from 1 Corinthians 6, from Galatians 1, and here from, I'm sorry, from Galatians 5, and then from 1 Timothy chapter 1, if all three passages are taken, 
And if a list were compiled from them, a list of evils, we can see that Paul is rather consistently teaching Christians to abstain from all of the evils which were already forbidden of Israel in the Old Testament commandments of Yahweh their God in one place or another. Paul's list includes idolatry. And therefore, we see that the first commandment is maintained, where Christ himself, when he was asked what is the first of all commandments, is recorded as having answered in Mark chapter 12, First is, here, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, and there is only one God. But then Christ had said, in verse 31 of that same chapter, Second is this, you shall love him near to you as yourself. No other commandment is greater than this. Therefore, Paul had said here, earlier in this chapter, for all the law, is fulfilled in one statement. You shall love him near to you as yourself. As we have also already elucidated here in our presentations of the earlier portions of this epistle, that second great commandment is not found in the list of the Ten Commandments that are so popularly known, which are first in the Bible in Exodus chapter 20 or in whatever other place they are given, it is found in Leviticus chapter 19. Paul's list of evils includes patricide and matricide, as he also admonished certain Romans whom he had described in chapter 1 of that epistle as being disobedient to parents. And that is something which he mentions again in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Of course, the commandments of Yahweh admonish men to honor their parents. Others of the Ten Commandments are upheld in Paul's teachings as well, where in these same passages, he includes admonishments against thieves, the covetous, the rapacious, envyings, murders, and kidnappings, where he admonishes against falsely swearing men. He upholds the commandment against false witness as well. Paul's list also includes fornication, adultery, and homosexuality. And where he mentions idolatry separate. A lot of these churches teach that fornication is idolatry. Because in a couple of instances, idolatry is described as fornication. But fornication and idolatry must be two different things in the minds of the apostles. And Paul lists them separately in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he also adds effeminates. These things, listed separately, must be sins which are distinct from idolatry and from one another. In the several places where Paul lists these things, they are also at the beginning of his lists, and therefore they are of great importance. Here we see that forbidden to Christians are all of the sexual sins which were also forbidden in the Old Testament, 
With this, we also see that Paul's admonishments bring all ten commandments under consideration as well as other Old Testament laws which may also be considered commandments. But of fornication, adultery, and homosexuality, there is more to be said here than what is taught by the denominational sects. The Catholic Church, in my own experience, has taught that fornication is sexual intercourse outside of church marriage, and that adultery is a sexual relationship with one who was already married, since nobody, nobody, no Christian got married in a church before the 17th century, then every Christian for 1,600 years committed adultery or fornication. What a fraud. Church marriage is only a couple of hundred years old. In the Old Testament scripture, there was no church marriage. Men married their women in a bed. So as we use these terms today, only the definition for adultery is nearly accurate. The definition for adultery which the church provides is almost accurate. Jeremiah 29 Verse 23 shows that men commit adultery on their wives or with other men's wives. But that is only partly accurate, as there are other sins which may be considered as adultery. There are at least three signal and explicit examples of what constitutes the act of marriage in Scripture, which are found in the marriage of Jacob to Leah which occurred in a bed. And the marriage of Isaac to Rachel, when he took her to the tent, and she became his wife. In that tent, there was certainly a bed, and not an altar, and a justice of the peace. And even in the illicit marriage of David to Bathsheba, where they, after they sinned in a bed, the woman was nevertheless considered to be his wife. The Roman Catholic form of marriage at an altar is taken from the practices of the temples of Baal and not from the laws of Yahweh. Since the act of marriage happens in a bed and not at an altar, then, and this is the important point, there is really no such thing as sexual intercourse outside of marriage in the laws of God unless it is a sin of another sort, such as adultery. Therefore, fornication must really mean something other than what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. In the laws of Yahweh, even when a man rapes a virgin, he is commanded to pay her father a sum and to keep her as his wife. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29. But if a man takes a woman who is not a virgin, if she has a husband, or even if she is a virgin promised to a husband, meaning that she is betrothed, then it is a sin punishable by death. 
And while the Greek word translated as fornication can refer to prostitution, that is only one form of illicit sex, which is generally forbidden by the laws of God. Both Paul and Jude use the term for fornication to refer to race mixing, something the Catholic Church will not tell you. Fornication is race mixing. They deny that, and they invent their own church marriage and their own guidelines for what fornication is. They are lying. Jude, where he defined fornication as the pursuit of different flesh, and Paul, where he both referred to the race-mixing Esau as a fornicator in Hebrews chapter 12, and again where he described the events of Numbers chapter 25, where the men of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, and Paul described that as fornication in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They weren't getting married to the daughters of Moab in the temple of Baal They were fornicating. This true meaning of fornication, which includes race mixing, is obfuscated in the false teachings of the denominational churches, which concern what constitutes a marriage. Only by understanding what marriage is can one then understand what it is, which is called fornication. Just as we were compelled by Christ to look beyond the Ten Commandments given in Exodus chapter 20, to find elsewhere in the law that second great commandment, which is to love thy neighbor as thyself, we are also compelled to look beyond the Ten Commandments of Exodus to find in the law how such fornication, which is the pursuit of different flesh, as Jude calls it, is forbidden in the law. Yet, God himself, through the example given of Adam, has outlined the bounds of the permissible marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help made for him. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which Yahweh God had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So marriage is between a man and a woman. Because male and female, he made them. And if a woman is not flesh of a man's flesh and bone of a man's bone, and a man joins to her, then they are fornicating. Even if they themselves think they are married, they are really just fornicating. In ancient Israel, those sorts of marriages happened in bow temples. 
just as the denominational churches readily conduct such mixed-race so-called marriages today. Now they shall also conduct same-sex so-called marriages as well, proving that they are indeed Baal temples set up to serve the government rather than serving God. For the same reasons that we are compelled by Christ to look beyond the Ten Commandments, that second great commandment, to love thy neighbor, we must look beyond the Ten Commandments to see what Paul had referred to where he admonishes against homosexuality and effeminates, not here in Galatians, but in the other lists of sins which he produces in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Doing so, we see in the laws of Yahweh in Leviticus that if a man also lie with mankind, as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death their blood shall be upon them. The law is fulfilled in we who pursue the spirit. Those who pursue the flesh await judgment. There is contention by certain sexual deviants today over what Paul had meant by his use of the term arsenokoitahi. Arsenokoitahi. Arsenos means male. Koitahi is plural. It comes from the, the word coitus. By using the plural masculine form of the term arsenokoites, which describes the act of coitus with men, sexual intercourse with men, Paul can only be referring to men who perform the act of sexual union with other men. The word can't possibly mean anything else. Therefore, the sin punishable by death in the Old Testament is still a sin in the New Testament, and only a sodomite would protest that assessment. But Jesus still hates sodomites. Paul's list also includes other things which are not found enumerated in the Ten Commandments, but which are nevertheless seen as evils in other ways in the books of the law. Among these are uncleanness, licentiousness, the use of drugs, drunkenness, and revelries, the putting away of all of these things which which would indicate the Christian's willingness to keep the food laws and also indicate the Christian's understanding of the failure of Noah when he and his family had drank too much wine, the trouble you can get yourself into, and the understanding of sin and the abandonment of Christian deportment by the children of Israel and the evils which had resulted from it where it is written that the people sat down to eat and to drink then rose up to play. Dirty dancing. This passage from Exodus chapter 32 described the behavior which Paul had later characterized as a form of idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
neither be ye idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. No matter how you may attempt to justify it, experience proves over and again that lewd and demonic behavior always leads men and women to sin. It's idolatry. Paul's lists even go beyond the explicit letter of the commandments of the law. Where he describes other things which Christians should consider sinful. And he mentions the lawless, the unruly, the impious, the wrongful, the unholy, the profane, or those who are railers, or who create hostilities, contention, rivalry, rats, intrigues, dissensions, and sects. All of this behavior, things which lead men to commit even greater sins, is portrayed in the same negative manner in the Proverbs, in the Psalms, and in the historical examples in Scripture. For instance, the adult Moses is introduced to us when he attempts to settle a quarrel between two Israelite men. And the Israelites even despised him for trying to settle their quarrel. There should be no doubt whatsoever that Paul of Tarsus had desired all Christians to abide by all of the commandments of Yahweh God, which are found in the Old Testament. He demanded that of Christians. Anyone who asserts otherwise is a liar, and perhaps a devil as well. It is the immoral people in our society, if you want to call them people, who have been the leading voices contending that these laws were done away with. As we had explained in earlier chapters of this presentation of Galatians, and as we believe Paul has fully illustrated, Yahweh God, through the Christian gospel, has called the children of Israel to repentance and seeks a people of Abraham's offspring who would do as Abraham did. Voluntarily keeping his laws in sincerity and not by compulsion. Therefore, after explaining what Christians should not be doing, Paul admonishes them to do well in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. And at least one ancient manuscript interpolates the word chastity here. And Paul says, there is no law against such things. For the same cause, speaking of tyrannical governments, Paul had said in Romans chapter 13, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. The call to Christ is a call to obedience. And once a man has self-control, which is, in the King James Version, translated as temperance, 
sentence. Only then does he have license to judge the sins of the world. As Paul also said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that Christians must endeavor, taking captive every thought into the obedience of the anointed, also being ready in readiness to avenge all disobedience whenever you shall have fulfilled your obedience. Being obedient to Christ, we honor his command that we love our brethren as ourselves, so we act towards one another in the manner in which Paul has described here. Therefore he concludes, but they of the anointed crucify the flesh along with those affections and those desires. As Paul had said further along in Romans chapter 8, further along from where we had just quoted, Moreover, if the spirit of he who raised Yahshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raises the anointed from the dead will also produce alive your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are obligated not to the flesh to live in accordance with the flesh. For if in accordance with the flesh you live, you are about to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When Christ was crucified in the flesh, his brethren were granted life. Therefore, when Christians crucify the flesh, they put the interests of their brethren ahead of their own interests and their own fleshly desires. Putting the interests of their brethren before their own interests, doing that, men are naturally compelled to keep the commandments of God in spirit and not in letter. When a man breaks the commandments of Yahweh, he harms his brethren in one way or another. There's no way around that. If you break those commandments, you're causing harm to your brethren. For instance, in the fulfillment of sexual lusts, a man destroys his own community by encouraging the sexual corruption of others by watching pornography, one encourages the destruction of chastity, of modesty, and approves of fornication and adultery by being a lesbian. Some man somewhere is deprived of a wife. By being a sodomite, one deprives his ancestors as well as his kinsmen of posterity. By teaching sodomy to, one, to young boys, one deprives his brother of posterity, forever corrupting the minds of those boys. In the taking of usury, one seeks to profit from his brethren so that he can repay the Jew. In the breaking of the food laws, one destroys one's own body and in the resulting illness becomes a burden to one's brethren. In the age of modernism, we despise our ancestors for being prudish. Yet, if, if we are the children of God, we are living monuments that our ancestors were right for being prudish. 
defy our very existence. It is proven that our ancestors had the blessings of God, and we should be just as prudish. If in the end we have no posterity of our own, that is because, as a nation, we have abandoned God, and he has withheld those blessings. Therefore, there is no excuse for abandoning the laws of Yahweh. If we live in the Spirit, in the Spirit, we should also walk, Galatians 5.25. And that's deeper than it appears. Paul is referring to those who had the Spirit of God, through which life and resurrection are possible, as he had written of the Adamic man in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And as he said in Romans chapter 8, you are not in the flesh, but in spirit, if indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you. Since the law is spiritual, only those who have the spirit of God can keep the law, which are the children of Israel, of whom Yahweh had promised to write his law in their hearts. The children of Israel, having that promise, of life by the Spirit, the Spirit of Yahweh, which dwells in them, then by the words, if we live in the Spirit, Paul is referring to those who are indeed children of God. And for that reason, they should walk in the Spirit because they live in or have life by that same Spirit. The phrase may have been translated if we have life by the Spirit, in the Spirit we should also walk. Therefore, we should keep the spiritual law, which the flesh by itself cannot keep. And if we pursue the desires of the flesh, we cannot possibly claim to be spiritual. That's a lie. Some Jew hippie religion. Verse 26. We should not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Greek adjective, kenodoxis, appears only here in the New Testament where we render it as conceited. Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, defines it as glorying without reason, vainglory, conceited, vainglorious, eager for empty glory. Doxus can be, can be glory. Kenos means vain. The related noun, kenodoxia, is vainglory. In the King James Version, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where the Christogenia New Testament has empty pride. The Greek word prokaleo is primarily to call forth, but in a bad sense, it is to provoke. Here it is provoking in the appropriate tense. It only appears elsewhere in Scripture, in apocryphal literature, 
in 2 Maccabees chapter 8 in its primary sense of a proclamation. The Greek word phthaneo is generally to envy, and that word also only appears in Scripture elsewhere, in apocryphal literature, in Tobit chapter 4, both times with the same meaning. We're in Tobit 4, verse 7, and very similarly in verse 16, it says, When thou givest alms, let not thine eye be envious. It's the word envious. The provocation and the envying of one another are not sins which are explicitly prohibited in law. However, they are certainly contrary to the spirit of law by which one should not cause his brother to stumble. However, Paul makes these admonitions hand in hand with the earlier admonitions in Galatians chapter 5 to serve one another with love and not to bite and devour one another. The conceit of men, as we will see in Galatians chapter 6, the conceit of men causes men to envy, provokes others to jealousy, and is contrary to Christian humility. While these things are not found in the law as explicit commandments, the children of Israel are nevertheless admonished by the law in other ways, to refrain from such things. The Greek words which Paul uses here do not appear in the Greek versions of the books of the canonical Old Testament, but there are certain synonyms which often appear. For instance, the Hebrew word marar, which is often rendered as provoke in the King James Version, where it describes the provocation of the children of Israel toward Yahweh, is also often translated as vex, where it is used of men provoking men. For instance, in Numbers chapters 25 and 33, it is used of the vexing of the children of Israel to sin by the Canaanites, where it may have better been translated as provoke in each instance where it appears. In this same respect, we also see Hebrew forms of both of these words which Paul uses here in Isaiah chapter 11, and it says in verse 12 and 13, And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim or provoke Ephraim. Therefore, the children of Israel should certainly not vex or provoke or envy one another or even make one another envious. When they do, they make themselves partners in the resulting sin. With this we shall commence with Galatians chapter 6. 
I'm sorry, I'm getting an unexpected Skype call. I thought I had that shut off. Brethren, even if a man should already be caught up in some transgression, you, those of the Spirit, restore such a man in a spirit of meekness, watching yourself, lest you also may be tested. By those of the Spirit, Paul refers to those who are walking in the Spirit, Conceit comes from pride, and neither should Christians be proud. Any one of us may fall into the trap which we should should seek to pull our brother out of. So we are reminded to be humble when we correct our brethren. As it says in Proverbs chapter 11, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the lowly or with the humble is wisdom. And again in Proverbs chapter 16, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. The Apostle James had written in chapter 5 of his epistle. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Christians have a duty to correct their brethren when they sin, but they must do so with humility. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Love has patience, is beneficial, love is not jealous, love does not vaunt itself, love is not inflated. Verse 2, should you bear one another's burdens and in that manner fulfill the law of the anointed? And here, where Paul has just mentioned conceit or vainglory and the spirit of meekness, Paul refers to the burden of the ego that we should not burden our brethren with our own self-righteousness or boasting when we attempt to correct our brother. And we will talk more about this verse when we get to verse 5. For if anyone supposes to be something, being nothing, he deceives his own mind. The chapter number may have changed. But the subject has not changed from Galatians 5.26, where Paul had said that we should not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is also what is meant in the many places where Christians are warned that Yahweh is not a respecter of persons, meaning that he does not judge men according to their stature or status. As Christians... We cannot rest on our laurels, so to speak, or claim some special authority merely because of our own accomplishments or who we think we are. As Paul warned in Colossians chapter 3, but he doing wrong is provided for that which he has done wrong, and there is not respect of the stature of persons. We do not want to be caught boasting of ourselves when we correct our brethren. So we do so with humility. Sometime after this epistle was written, 
When there was a problem in Corinth with the fornicator, Paul had chastised certain of the Corinthians because of their response to that situation, where he said in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, and your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And likewise, Paul says here in verse 4, so to each, so each, I'm sorry, so each must scrutinize his own work, and then he has a boast to himself only and not to another. As an example of such boasting, we may read from Luke chapter 18, where Joshua spoke this parable unto certain of them which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, meaning the publican, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Men should therefore not boast in their own deeds. From Proverbs chapter 29, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Therefore Paul concludes in verse 5, for each will bear his own load. There are many apologists who attempt to assign different esoteric meanings to the words translated respectively here in the Christian New Testament as burden, which is the Greek word baros, and load, which is the, the synonym, basically, the Greek word Fortion. Baros is in verse 2 here, and Fortion is in verse 5. In the King James Version, both words are translated as burden. And in that version, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, is not understood to be a rhetorical question. In fact, no other version of the New Testament that we know of translates Galatians 6.2 as a rhetorical question. In the King James Version, one verse says, Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the other version says, I'm sorry, and the other verse says, verse 5 says, for every man shall bear his own burden. So the mainstream commentators struggle to somehow explain away the obvious conflict that these two verses present as they were read 
by the King James translators and all other translators. So we have some technical remarks concerning the Greek of verse 2. In verse 2 of this chapter, the verb forbear is a present indicative. And in some, not all, in some of the older manuscripts, the verb for fulfill is a future indicative, as the 3rd century papyrus P46 and the codices, I'm sorry, the Codex Vaticanus each have it, which is a tense that is also often used for the aorist subjunctive. And MacDonald, William MacDonald's Greek and Caridian on page 46 says that the aorist subjunctive and the future indicative are often used interchangeably. The indicative often being used in interrogation and reading the second verb as a subjunctive this verse, Galatians 6.2, is very naturally read as a question, in which case there is no conflict with Paul's statement here in verse 5 of this chapter. But that second verb in verse 2, which is fulfilled, in the Codices Sinaiticus Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri and Beze, appears in the aorist imperative tense. And the difference between the two tenses of the verb is only one vowel, one letter in a long word on a pleurosate with an A as the penultimate vowel is the aorist imperative rather than on a pleurosate with an E as the penultimate vowel, which would make it a future indicative. The modern translations all follow that reading with the A as the penultimate vowel. They all interpret the verb as the aorist imperative. And therefore, they all have verse 2 as a statement rather than as a rhetorical question. If we accepted that reading, then we too would have to translate verse 2 as a statement. And very likely, the conflict with verse 5 would never be resolved, ever. Only by reading verse 2 as a rhetorical question, by following the manuscripts that have the verb for fulfill as a future indicative, only then are both of Paul's statements here properly reconciled. In the context of both verses, Paul is referring to the burden of the ego, which we must not impose on our brethren. So, Galatians 6.2 is a rhetorical question, and the answer to the rhetorical question is no. Christians should not burden their brethren with their own egos. And in that manner, they would fulfill the law of Christ. Because the law of Christ cannot be fulfilled by braggarts. Therefore, Paul concludes here in verse 5 that concerning the ego, each will bear his own load 
and thereby not provoke his brethren to envy by boasting. So Christians do not burden their brethren with their own egos, but rather they should help their weaker brethren by bearing whatever they can of the weakness of their brethren. As Paul had said in Romans chapter 15, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. With this, Paul changes the topic. He who is instructed in the word must share in all good things with he who is teaching. Christians should provide for their teachers. As Paul had also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do you not know that those who in sacred things are laboring from of the temple that they eat? Those who are attending at the altar take a share with the altar. Also in that manner has the prince appointed those announcing the good message from of the good message to live. And in verse 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Yahweh is not mocked. Indeed, whatever a man should sow, that he shall also reap. And as Christ said in Matthew chapter 10, the workman is worthy of his meat. But in this case, the work and the reward are related to the objectives of establishing the kingdom of heaven. The same Yahweh, the same Yahshua Christ, who said in Revelation chapter 22, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every man according as his work shall be. Said that the workman is worthy of his meat. If we walk in the Spirit, and we believe that we should have life by that Spirit, then it is foolish to strive for fleshly things that are temporary, rather than, as Paul is about to explain, spiritual rewards which are eternal. Because he who is sowing for his own flesh, from the flesh he shall reap destruction. But he who is sowing for the Spirit, from the Spirit he shall reap life eternal. Since Paul's statement cannot conflict with what things he has already said about the children of Israel in Romans chapter 5, which he actually wrote after this epistle, and elsewhere, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in relation to promises of eternal salvation, which explain that all of the children of Israel shall be saved, it may have been better to interpret the second half of this verse, because there is no conflict. But he who is sowing for the Spirit, from the Spirit he shall reap for eternal life. The preposition being interpreted from the grammatical case of the noun after the manner in which William MacDonald describes of the accusative of general reference in his Greek and Caridian on page 90, where it is evident and it's evident actually throughout the scripture, that in certain cases, such prepositions must be supplied in English. And in most translations, in many places, they are frequently supplied. However, in any case, 
The destruction of which Paul speaks is destruction of the flesh, of the individual, and not of the spirit. As he also said of a fornicator in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, having instructed the assembly to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Likewise, Paul said in chapter 3 of that same epistle, for another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which is built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Ostensibly, the spiritual rewards which Christians seek for their earthly labors are permanent, while those who seek only the things of the flesh in their earthly labors have no reward, and that is also permanent. This would accord with the words of the prophet Daniel, where it says in chapter 12 that many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And Paul continues with Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Now we should not waver from doing well, for in due time we shall reap without failing. So then, while we have occasion, we should work it good towards all, but especially towards those of the family of the faith. The word for family here is the Greek word oikaios, where the King James Version has household. According to Liddell and Scott, the word oikaios, oikaios, I'm sorry, means in or of the house. And ostensibly, for that very reason, they add that of persons, it means of the same family or kin, related, and also belonging to one's house or family. The faith being according to the promises to Abraham, the family of the faith can only be the seed of Abraham through Jacob, which had become many nations according to that same promise as Paul has described in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3, and which were at one time subject to the Levitical ordinances and to the laws of God as Paul has described here in Galatians chapters 3, 4, and 5. With the intent to reference this same thing, Paul used the similar Greek word, oikonomia, which according to Liddell and Scott is the management of a household or family, and his epistles twice in Ephesians chapter 3, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
and in 1 Corinthians 9.17, where Paul said that he had been entrusted with the oikonomia, with the management of a family. Yet on every occasion, the King James translation absolutely ignores the primary meaning of the word oikonomia. The promise of the new covenant in the Old Testament says this, which Paul quotes verbatim in his epistle to the Hebrews. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house, the oikos of Israel, and with the house, the oikos of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In the date that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So we see that the new covenant is made with the sons and daughters of the people that the old covenant was made with, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house, the oikos of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. In the Septuagint version of Jeremiah, the word for house in that passage is oikos, which is literally a house, but also a household or family in the sense in which the equivalent Hebrew word appears in this passage from Jeremiah chapter 31. From that word oikos, the words oikaios and oikonomia are derived for family and for management of a family. We see in the Septuagint the same word oikos used repeatedly of the ancient people of Israel taken captive. In Ezekiel chapter 39, where the history of the people of Israel ever since the captivity is summarized in a prophecy. And the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore, I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Now will I bring the cap captivity, will I again bring the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name, after that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses, where, whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid, when I have brought them again from the people, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am Yahweh their God, who caused them to be led into captivity among the nations. But I have gathered them into their own land, and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face from them any more. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith Yahweh God. That started 
with the first Christian Pentecost. As Yahweh also said in Amos chapter 3, of that same house of Israel going into captivity, hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family. In the Septuagint version, that same Greek word oikos, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And that agreement will come when every knee of the children of Israel bows to Christ. So where Paul refers to the children of Israel, he refers to Israel according to the flesh, because, as he says in Galatians chapter 3, even a validated covenant of man, no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. Therefore, Israel cannot be redefined by some supposed church authority. So Paul accounts Israel by tribes in Acts chapter 26, where he says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes, there are only two and a half tribes, representatives of two and a half tribes in Judea, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. And he doesn't leave room for anyone else to be added to. In Acts chapter 28, Paul attests that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And then in Romans chapter 9, it is evident that he reckons Israel according to the flesh, where he says, for I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren my kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons and the honor and the covenants and the legislation and the service and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh. Those who belong to Christ belong to Christ in regards to the flesh being overall blessed of Yahweh for the ages. It is once again evident that Paul reckoned Israel according to the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, Behold, Israel down through the flesh are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar. And he concludes, Rather, that whatever the nation sacrificed, those nations are Israel according to the flesh. They sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. But this Israel whom he refers to in this passage are not the remnant of Israel in Palestine. Rather, they are the Israelites of the ancient dispersions who were cast off because they had followed that paganism which in that place Paul describes, among whom were the Dorian Greek Corinthians. As Paul said to them in that same chapter from verse 1, 
Now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all had passed through the cloud and the sea, and all up to Moses, all, of course, meaning all Israel, because there weren't any Zulus and Mandingos in the cloud and in the sea, and all up to Moses had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea. These Israelites are the Romans chapter 4 Israelites of the nations of Abraham's seed, in which Abraham believed that he would become a father of many nations according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be, as Paul wrote in Romans 4.18. These nations descended from Abraham are the family of the faith to whom Paul had brought the gospel of reconciliation in Christ. This is the truth for which Paul declared that he was persecuted in Acts chapter 26, which we will repeat one more time. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise? Our twelve tribes serving instantly, serving God instantly, day and night, hope to come. Paul was persecuted. What a Christian identity message. This is the message that the Jews, the eternal enemies of Yahweh God, hate above all messages, and they persecute it to this very day. This is why, this is a little digression, this is why I have always said that Paul bashers are whores for the Jews. Because by diminishing Paul of Tarsus, they actually assist the Jews in obscuring the truth of the gospel as it was originally taught by Paul of Tarsus. I repeat once again, all Paul bashers are indeed whores for the Jews. They are shikses for Satan who do not know the scripture and who do their best in preventing others from knowing it. It is evident in many places in his epistles that Paul had dictated his letters and others transcribed them. However, it was also evidently customary from several of the his epistles, that he made a salutation himself, as we shall see in his next verse, where he says, Do you see in how large letters I have written to you in my own hand? Paul once again refers to the thorn in the flesh, which he described in Galatians chapter 4, which is his poor eyesight. Poor eyesight would force him to write in larger than normal letters. Most versions do not read this verse as a question. However, in this case, either reading is acceptable. As many as desire to look good in body, these compel you to be circumcised only in order that they would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Only in order that they would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
when we're all circumcised, Jews can hide. So we see exactly why the Jewish medical profession has gotten us all to be circumcised today. The phrase ensarki is literally in flesh, but here, and in the plural in verse 13, it is in body, being read rather metaphorically. The Greeks put a strong emphasis on physical perfection, and especially in connection with their pagan gods, which is evidenced throughout their literature and throughout their art. I'm going to read a short paragraph from an article entitled Sculpting the Body of the Greek God, which was a pretty good summary, which is actually from a website for people with that very pursuit in mind. And there we read the following. We all want to look good naked. Few phrases conjure up the idea of pure physical perfection better than hearing someone described as having the body of a Greek god. And that's for good reason. The ancient Greeks were obsessed with physical and natural beauty and the math and proportions behind it all. They were some of the first civilizations to codify the elements of what makes something beautiful. And in a word, it all comes down to proportions, specifically the golden ratio, the ratio of an object like a building, its width to its height or its circumference to its height. And that paragraph is absolutely true. The Greeks were indeed obsessed with physical beauty, physical perfection, in response to the Greek pursuit of the physical ideal, Paul had said in his first epistle to Timothy that bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Yet Paul had commended the Galatians, who, since they had settled in Anatolia, had become imbibed to a great degree, with Greek cultures and values. Paul had commended them for having accepted him with his poor eyesight. Contrary to the prevailing Greek attitudes relating godliness and physical perfection. And Paul says, for not even they who are being circumcised themselves keep the law but they wish you to be circumcised in order that they may boast in your bodies. And Christ had upbraided the Pharisees many times for giving the appearance of piety, yet neglecting to keep all of the important matters of the law, as Christ had said in part. Where it is recorded in Matthew chapter 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but within are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within 
you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The circumcision is a sign, and those who bear it are thereafter subservient to those men whom they submitted themselves to, who performed the ritual upon them. Those who administer the ritual may boast in the bodies of those whom they manage to circumcise. The same psychology lies behind any ritual, including baptism. Any actual need for such things, according to the law of God, was done away with in Christ. And this is why certain Baptist ass clowns hate me the most because they are hereby exposed for the frauds that they really are, seeking to control men by getting men to submit to them in rituals. They seek to rule over men, just like these first century Judaizers sought to rule over the Christians by getting them to submit to rituals like circumcision. But to me, it may not happen to boast, except in the cross of our prince, Joshua Christ, through whom the cosmos, or the society, has been crucified to me and I to the society. As Paul had said in the closing words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just as it is written, he who is boasting in Yahweh, he must boast. Indeed, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new foundation. Some of the uh, older manuscripts, rather than starting this, verse with the single word indeed have at the beginning with Yahshua Christ neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new foundation that word for foundation is the Greek word kathesis which is often creature or creation in the King James Version Paul's use of the term here in this context is exemplary of the fact that the word does not necessarily refer to the creation in its totality as the Genesis 1 account is described, but it often refers only to the foundation of a particular thing, such as of a practice, as we see here. Or a law, or a custom. As Paul uses the term in the later part of Romans chapter 8, it is clear that the term was used to describe only certain elements of God's creation, as opposed to other elements of that creation. Verse 16 And as many as shall be in line with his standard, peace upon them, and mercy, even upon the Israel of Yahweh. The words even upon indicate that Paul means to make a parallelism, that the Israel of Yahweh should accept the standard, and therefore it is of them that Paul hoped that as many as would consist. 
The family of the faith is the Israel of Yahweh, opposed to the Edomite pretenders calling themselves Israel. We have seen that Paul has been addressing the Judaizers throughout this epistle, as he still is here, and that from Acts chapter 15, it is apparent that these Judaizers had been originating in Jerusalem and Judea. Citing Romans chapter 9 in our discussion of Paul's use of the phrase family of the faith in verse 10 of this chapter, we had seen that Paul was concerned for those in Judea who were his kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites. Picking up from that very point, Paul had then told the Romans, not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. If all of those in Judea were not Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, then not all of those in Israel were actually Israelites. And those who were calling themselves Israelites were not the Israel of God, because all of the Israel of God are indeed Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israelites. As Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in Romans chapter 4, the Israel of God which is Israel according to the flesh, are those pagan nations which had descended from the ancient Israelites who were dispersed from as early as the time in Egypt and up to the Assyrian captivities of Israel and Judah, up to about 700 years before Paul had written this epistle. The Israel of Yahweh are the 12 tribes scattered abroad of James chapter 1 the elect race, holy nation, and peculiar people of 1 Peter chapter 2, and the 12 tribes of the promise that Paul describes in Acts chapter 26. And none of them were ever Jews. As Paul himself states, the Jews are not Israel at all. Rather, Paul describes the Edomite Jews as vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9. And in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, he describes them again where he says, you should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, meaning apostasy had already come, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the man of lawlessness in Paul's time was already revealed. The son of destruction, the vessels of destruction, the descendants of Esau in Romans chapter 9. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship, which is the exact pattern of behavior which the Jews engage in to this day. And so, and Paul's writing this epistle to the Thessalonians from Corinth, probably in 51 or 52 AD. So the temple is still standing when he wrote it. And so, he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, present tense, is seated, representing himself 
present tense, that he is God or a God. So we see Paul describe the Edomite Jew. If Christians understood that all these Jews are devils, every one of them, and were to forever be rejected, then they would have the peace which Paul describes in his conclusion here. Henceforth, no one must cause me troubles, for I bear the marks of Prince Joshua in my body, the favor of our Prince, Joshua Christ, is with your spirit, brethren, truly, or, if you will, amen. Paul does not literally bear the scars of Christ in his body, but figuratively, because, as he had written in Romans chapter 6, know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized, not in water, into his death, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together, meaning from the same tree, planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. As Paul therefore said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Christians should at all times bear about the death of Yahshua in the body in order that also the life of Yahshua in our body may be manifest. Here we conclude our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Next week, we shall be on a road. And on Friday, we will have, I hope, a discussion program. I hope to discuss quite a few things, and I would also like to take some calls. Tomorrow night, The Protocols of Satan, Part 4. We hope to finish our proof of the legitimacy of the source of the protocols, chiefly from the writings of Nesta Webster. Because of our travels, the next segment of Christogenia Europe is scheduled for September 20th. Yahweh, God be willing. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.